the people that are here this weekend. Um, and uh, the other thing is following the book and uh, hearing a message like Clancy is uh, I like to hear good information. Uh, and that's information that derives from the book about Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, that's what we're getting. And when I hear Clancy, that's the kind of information I always seem to receive. And with nothing further for me, I give you Clancy I. Good evening. My name is Clancy, and I'm an alcoholic. I'm very glad to be here this evening. The uh, interim between the fact-filled sessions of Joe and Charlie, and to uh, share a little bit of my experience, strength, and hope. I'm very glad. I can't tell you how pleased I am to see such a good turnout for this weekend, because you know there's a feeling, and with a certain amount of uh, certain amount of validity that there is so much extraneous stuff in AA this, these days that sometimes people aren't interested in the basic AA because it doesn't agree with what the counselor told them at their treatment center or what their issues said or what their inner child is muttering about. And sometimes you wonder if AA is ever going to survive in its present form. So I'm really glad to see a thousand people show up to be, because they're interested in the big book and what it says because that certainly is a you will find if you hang around here and do these things on a continuing basis, you'll stay a long time and you'll feel a lot better than the people who stay by the wayside and tell you not to, so that they have a better way. I, uh, I was thinking today that I, I'm, I can't remember, I can't remember ever being so cold as I was last night. I went for, I went for a little walk after the meeting and I just about froze to the sidewalk. I couldn't believe it. And I grew up in cold worse than this. I grew up in northern Wisconsin. It was 40 below sometimes. And, uh, but it never was this cold. Uh, you have a special kind of cold in Columbus, I guess. Uh, and I'm not at all surprised that, uh, what, 50 or 60 people did not show up because of the cold. You know, but, uh, but I also know that my first sponsor, who was a rather, who did not bear fools graciously, would tell them something like, well, goddammit, next time you have a depression, call Jack Frost. Yeah. <laughs> but he didn't understand sensitive people like you and me. But I'm always here glad to hear Joe and Charlie because they are, they are what I think of as fundamentalists. And fundamentalists are what make AA progress and make keep AA strong. And they are the very things that the the outriders, the, the jackals on the, out, on the fringes of AA dislike because they keep people here instead of doing, here, doing the things that make AA and themselves alive and strong instead of going off to this fad or that fad or some money-making operation where people will be glad to tell you anything to make a few bucks. And it's always very interesting to me because I suppose that one of the things we all have in common is a little voice inside of us somewhere. Some, after a while, it gets very quiet, but it'll come back if I let it. And that voice says, but your case is different. You need something special. And it sounds kind of funny, but it happens all over. You know, over the last few years, I've traveled a lot of places around the world uh, in AA. Joe and Charlie have been to most places I've been to. Either they've been there or they're just coming there kind of interesting. You go to all these countries and they all know about Joe and Charlie. One, I said, 
last uh, June, I toured the major cities of Australia and, and uh, listened to a lot of guys talk about AA. And in April, I, I was someplace that Joan, even Joan Charlie haven't been to. I was uh, talked to the major cities of South Africa, Johannesburg and Durban and Cape Town. And that really is a very, a very uh, unusual type of AA because they have three gradations of AA. They're, they have white AA and they have black AA. The black AA is natives and what they call colored, which is what we would call African-American, but a mixture of the two. And uh, sometimes the, sometimes people go to other meetings. The colored can go to the white meeting. No one keeps them out, and the black goes to colored meeting. But it's pretty well delineated. And uh, the week, the day I got there, a communist leader had been assassinated, and there was started to, some really upset, and they're still going in, in some areas. And the uh, National Congress people were very upset about this. And I. At the National Convention in Durban, which was held on a weekend, I was there first in Johannesburg, then at the National Convention, then on Johannesburg, or to Cape Town. We came out of a Sunday afternoon meeting, and, uh, you know, a bunch of white guys pouring out of this meeting at the University of Durban, and outside is a bunch of activists with a big sign saying, White man, we will wash your, our feet in your blood. And I tried to think of an AA response to that. But the only one, I, only one I could think of was, oh, shit. And what was very fortunate for me is that that was a mixed meeting, one of the few mixed meetings in South Africa. And a young black guy came up and said, talked to him and explained to them apparently that we were in AA. And we were all together in AA. So they wrapped up their sign and away they went. I, I thank Dr. Bob and Bill in heaven. Thank you. Thank you. And I've been a lot in Europe, a lot of places in AA, and you think that you hear all kinds of different approaches to AA, but you really don't. It's, it's absolutely almost staggering and mystifying how similar people are like you and me, how similar alcoholics are everywhere in the world, everywhere, you know, except for the accent, you might as well just stay home. You just hear the same... Right. Remember sitting in Berlin about just a few blocks from the shortly after the wall came down. It was really exciting. I I went and got I went and chipped pieces off that wall and put them in a sack to take them home to my grandchildren so I could show them that I loved them more than their other grandfather. You gotta do what you gotta do, you know can't just keep them giving them five dollar bills uh, but I had a talk at a meeting on a what at an evening on the night before that we went to a meeting just a few blocks from checkpoint Charlie you know where all the spies used to win and out and it was really exciting for the first time in many many years people were going in and out of that checkpoint Charlie we went across and came back it was really exciting and East Germans and some of them were in this meeting and just you never you know you just are going to hear you're going to hear about freedom now and what freedom really means and what Alcoholics Anonymous and freedom bring to people. And you sit in that meeting and hear some boob behind you say, but uh, I don't think you really understand. I, I'm afraid my case is different. <laughs> See you down to the coffee shop, Fritz.
Yeah. And it's really remarkable. Two, two absolutely antithetical things that we hold in common. We are all so similar, and yet we all, our lives depend on overcoming an everlasting feeling that we are truly different. And it's just so amazing. And that's one of the great things about a study such as today, to understand that despite what people tell you are paid employees of various commercial organizations, the big book means just what it says. That's what Joe and Charlie have been telling us for two days now. It means what it says. It doesn't have any mystic, hidden issues. It doesn't have any hidden meaning. The first word of each sentence does not spell out something else. It means what it says. It's really quite simple. And it's so simple that smart alecks like me have a hard time accepting it. And I almost died as a result of that. Because I was in and out of AA year after year after year after year. And I was relatively bright, and I was considered a good writer, and I had good jobs, and I very nearly died. And I, uh, it took me a while to get to a point of, as some authorities have called it, sweet reasonableness, where someone was able to superimpose that message over me. I used to be, uh, every so often I get, as I was tonight, being the oldest person in the room in sobriety. I know I'm not the oldest person in A by thousands, but I was tonight. And uh, that gives me a feeling of rather, uh, and I need a little help with my humility. And I, I want you to know I got it this morning. I was over at the tape desk, looking at tapes, seeing where they had placed my tape. And a nice, charming old couple next to me were explaining to the guy at the desk, no, no, we don't want Clancy's tapes, just Joe and Charlie's. You know, I didn't care. Forgot about it immediately. I followed them to their car and I have their license number. They'll be sorry when I'm successful someday. But I'm in a position that a lot of people in this room aren't in. I'm in a position where today I'm in a position where I see alcoholics die. And I mean, see, physically die. I don't mean they, they get sick. Oh, he's looking sick. I mean, where we see them die from time to time, and sometimes we have to put a blanket over their face and uh, call people to take them away. And I see alcoholics live in pain and agony. And I watch them sometimes over a long period of time get sicker and sicker and die, or get sicker and sicker and lay in pain. And it, it seems so frustrating to me. I get letters from a lady in New Delhi, India, saying how much my tapes helped her. And somebody will write me a letter from Russia saying my tapes helped her. And here's a guy that I know and care for, and I can't even touch him. And I can't help him. Why the big hotshot speaker should be able to help someone they really care for. But it turns out being a hotshot speaker is not what does it. It turns out that what happens is, when that feeling of difference is left untended long enough, it becomes almost, to my, in my opinion, almost like a, a, a cocoon, a coffin that keeps anything out. And that very thought, you can see it in their eyes. I know you mean well, but you don't understand. I want to take these guys and shake them and say, I, come on. I lay on that same piece of sidewalk myself. I know that feeling. Then I have to remember, if it were that easy, if words could do it, 
I wouldn't have been in and out of AA year after year after year because I would have a great many good people tried to help me and a great many kind people tried to help me and good AAs tried to help me. I know they were good AAs because when I finally made a year, something got me to do it, I don't know why, but on the morning of my birthday, I called all my previous sponsors all over the country and I, they were all still sober and they were all, most of them when I said, this is Clancy, there was no enthusiasm in their voice. You know, they said, yes. I know what they were thinking. This boob is going to try to borrow some money. He's in a jam somewhere. I said, I, I just, I want you to know I made a year and I'm very grateful to you for the help part you played in it. And they couldn't believe it. But I know they were good A's because they stayed sober and they worked with people. And they stayed sober working with me whether I made it or not. Which is one of the great lessons we learn around here in the 12th step. We carry the message not to people who stay sober, we carry the message to people who still suffer. And it helps us. If we are fortunate and try to transmit something we have got, sometimes we can help them too. We can steer them, but they still have to do it within themselves. But I look back at my life, and my whole life has been spent feeling different for very good reasons. I, uh, I really got a catalog of my reasons when I was a... Well, usually I don't leave till a little bit later, but... Uh, well, maybe you're serving the ice cream. I don't know. I really got a feeling. I got to learn about my feelings of difference when I was a young man and was in psychoanalysis. I had tried AA, and AA was not, did not fit people like me. AA is a nice, I think about that today. I was sent to my first AA meeting in 1949. That's a long time ago. A lot of you little snots weren't even born. We love you. <laughs> but, uh, there, you know, I was 22 years old. AA is, 22 is not very terribly young now. And AA, there's several number of people in this room, 22 or younger, I'm sure. But at that time, no one had heard of anybody, at least in our, that area, within 15 or 20 years of it. So they just thought I was a little freak, and I thought they were old, burned-out boobs. And I didn't... Uh, there was no connection. Among other reasons, the age, other things, is because they were people who described that their problem was alcohol. And when they stopped drinking alcohol, things got better. And I stopped drinking alcohol, and things did not get better. In fact, they came a little, little bit worse, and I began to understand at that time why I drink. I drink because I feel bad when I don't drink. That's all. I uh, sometimes remember that now because today there are... I was telling someone this earlier, too. Today, young people, I think, come to AA and they forget that they're, it's unusual to have young people in AA. And so I want to take a minute just to say something to you. Here in my home group, there's a lot of young people, big group in West, uh, West Los Angeles. Phyllis used to be a member of it, so she broke free and escaped here. But, you know, 10, 1,100 people every Wednesday night. It's bigger than this assemblage tonight, every Wednesday night, if you can imagine that. But anyway... We have a lot of young people in that meeting. And if you're like the young people in that meeting, I want to tell you something. You are the future leaders of AA. You are the future old timers of AA. You are the future decision makers of AA. And I want to tell you something else. If you're like the young people in our group, I am really glad I'm going to be dead. <laughs> I, I just don't see how AA can survive that type of leadership.
And the other thing that keeps me going is that I remember my sponsor saying the same thing about my generation. So I, uh, he's glad he's dead. But in looking back over my life, I see the feelings of difference I've had all my life. Uh, I, I've talked a lot over the years about my emotions, as we often do. But I suppose I could break them down kind of generally into three general areas that I would consider for time's sake to, uh, to be pretty much the type of feelings I've had. One feeling I've had much of my life, I didn't really identify it after I was sober for a while, until I heard a guy talking about it in his inventory, he was telling me his inventory, and I thought, God, I've had that feeling all my life without being aware of it. And that's kind of a funny little feeling. It's a feeling of, in some way that I cannot understand, people treat me as though I'm not quite good enough. I don't know what, why. I don't know why I'm not quite good enough, but I know that if they get close to me long enough, they will come to the conclusion, I am not good enough. And they won't necessarily hate me or desert me. They'll just drift off. And I don't know what it is. But I know this, that as a young person, I guess I built up a defense mechanism I didn't recognize till later, and that is this. Keep people at a distance. Don't let people get too close, because the ones that get too close pretty soon will turn on you. They'll find out you're not enough. So keep them at a little bit of a distance. Give them a lot of clever remarks and a little tap dance and a little image and this and that. But if you let them too close, pretty soon they'll, they'll drift off. And I don't know what it is that makes me not quite enough but I know I have to be careful that people don't get too close and find it out. And another general area of my life that it took me a while to understand, I've always been bothered by intermittent fear. And sometimes it's physical fear, but more likely it's emotional fear and fear of being found out and fear they won't like me, fear they're going to say this, and fear I won't be accepted, and fear that I won't do on and on. It's almost better to not even try than to try and fail. Fear of failure, fear of not fitting in, fear of all these things. And another, the last general area of my life that I suppose was a general area is that I've always seemed to me been, in retrospect, always highly sensitive to rejection. I can see rejection where nobody can see rejection. I can hear it in a tone of voice that nobody can hear. I can, when I'm at the top of my game, I can see it in a passing memo. I just... And the bad thing about that is, a little rejection never hurt anybody. The bad thing about it is that there's a, there's a result of that. And that is this. Every so often, I really get my feelings hurt. I get my feelings hurt a lot, most of my life. But I sometimes really get them hurt when I'm feeling particularly vulnerable in some critical situation. And somebody does something to me that hurts my feelings. And what's wrong? This is something I was sober for some time before I realized this. I heard someone talking about it. I said, yes! And it's just this. If I'm feeling very vulnerable, some public situation where someone really hurts my feelings, or if I expose myself to someone and they've used it against me, or something, when my feelings are really hurt, I have a conditioned reflex, just as conditioned as Dr. Pavlov's dog. And that is this. No matter what it costs me, I will deprive you of my presence forever. Okay, screw you. And it's kind of funny, except it's cost me big jobs, cost me loves, cost me dear friends, that later I thought, Why did, what in the world was such a big deal? But at that moment, there's extreme vulnerability, extreme hurt feeling, and this whole type of thing. And go through life with this kind of thing all the time. 
And uh, these and a lot of other things made me feel that I somehow there's something wrong with my emotions. And I tried a lot of therapies. And I went into I went into uh, psychoanalysis when I was a young man in the early 1950s. You know, they always say you shouldn't go to psychoanalysis. I loved it. I made breakthroughs that would send shivers down your spine. I found out why I have these emotions, you know. Because I've always lived my life, if I can just find out why, I'll be all right. You know, I've lived my life, the best analogy I've ever been able to think of, it's an old one, but still, I don't know a better way to say it. I've lived my life like I were on the deck of the Titanic. And it hits the iceberg and down it goes. Nobody rows away as fast as they can. And people like me say, I'm not getting off this baby till I find out why this happened. And you may find out why, and it gives you a feeling of spiritual superiority. You people in the boat! Ha, 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 ha! I know why. Takes a while to... Takes a few years to learn knowing why you're going down is of no value whatsoever. You want to get off that damn sinking ship is what you want to do. But I was also looking into why. And I found out why in psychoanalysis. I, I loved it. I, uh, I found out that, I talked about this before, but I found out, for example, that I had been psychologically scarred by the Norwegian Lutheran Church. Now, yeah, I don't think you have much of it here, but up in northern Wisconsin, there's a lot. And they really only have two rules, as far as I could ever determine. You don't sin, and you don't monkey around with Catholics. That's pretty much it. Seems reasonable if you want to go to heaven. And uh, as I was growing up, I, uh, I was growing up, it, unfortunately, I was one of those people who needed a little more fun than most Lutherans. That's all. And I got sinning a little bit, and then I got monkeying with Catholics, and I got sinning with Catholics. And then, so I knew I was going to hell, but it was, really wasn't my fault. I, I never blamed the church for it, it was just my own need for fun. But later on in psychoanalysis, I discovered that the Norwegian Lutheran Church had psychologically repressed me and left deep scars. How would you like to find that out about your own church that you'd always liked, that they'd repressed you, left deep scars? If I knew then what I know now, I would have formed adult children of Norwegian Lutherans. We could have hired a couple of codependents and sat around and been pissed off every week. <laughs> I discovered I'd been hurt terribly by, by the military in World War II, and I was too young to run away to enlist. I discovered that I'd been hurt by the Depression. Didn't even know there'd been a Depression, but I found out. I discovered a lot of things. It was always a lot of sadness. Years later, years later, when I was in AA for some years, I used to look back and think, why did I like psychoanalysis so well? You know, it really, it cost me a lot of money, more than I had. It cost me a lot of inconvenience because I drove to a different town to see the doctor. I didn't want people in my community to know that I was goofy. And you never get any good news in psychoanalysis. You always find out how you've been screwed in some new way and don't even know it. And I really just used to, I'd come out of there and have just a few drinks and think, it's amazing I'm doing as well as I am, for Christ's sake. 
I've had a sad life. I could tell you stories. No, 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 don't worry about me. And years later, I, I, I never could understand why this was. But years, in the last six or seven years, I have discovered why I like psychoanalysis. It did something for me that only alcohol ever did. Psychoanalysis did something for me. I'll tell you, the worst emotion I know, the most painful emotion I know for people like me is long-term, deep-seated guilt. You can joke about it, you can laugh about it, you can whitewash it. But at 2 o'clock in the morning, sometimes you wake up and there it is waiting for you, boy. And it's guilt sometimes of things you've done, but there's an even more insidious, lethal guilt of the things you haven't done, the things I should have done. I should have told my mother. I should have said, I should have done, I should have gone on and on. And it's just, there's no explaining those. I have always been able to rationalize the wrong things I did, but the things I didn't do, I've never been able to really rationalize. And guilt is an emotion you don't get rid of. You get rid of a lot of emotions. Get rid of love, hate, fear, a lot of things. At least temporarily. But guilt stays there. I discovered in my life that a few drinks gets rid of guilt. But I wake up sometimes in the morning and I have more guilt. So I have the guilt plus this new guilt. But uh, psychoanalysis removed my guilt. And you may wonder, how can that do that? How could it? It's the only thing I've ever seen outside of alcohol that removes guilt. I'll tell you how it removes guilt. It's a very simple thing, but you, I was never aware of it until I see it happen around me. You must convince the patient that he or she is and has been a victim. Victimization removes guilt because when it is their fault, it is no longer my fault. They did this to me. They programmed me this way. They, they, even though they didn't mean to perhaps, but they changed my life. They ruined me. I have no chance. And I'll tell you, it sounds kind of funny, except there are therapies around us where people are making millions of dollars on this victimization. It's probably the hottest thing in America's uh, psychobabble today is victimization. And, it, and they're getting rid of victimization. And I, so you think, well, what's the, big, what's the wrong about that? Got to get rid of victimization. I mean, to get rid of guilt by a little victimization, so what? Take the victimization. And that's all right, too, you know. There's, but unfortunately, you learn as you grow older and that uh, nothing is ever free in the world. There's always a little price tag for everything. Always a little price tag for everything, whether you see it or not. And there are three little price tags hidden in the victimization, which you may not see for years, as I didn't. One, whether you intend to or not, you must accept and enhance a growing resentment of those that have done it to you. If you've ever gone to one of these victimization meetings, I've been to a couple of them with someone else. I have not been to, I have not been to any victimization meetings as a, because I've always been satisfied with aid, but years ago I would have gone as a patient. But I went with someone else because I wanted to see what they were doing. And I'll tell you something. There's no laughing and no smiling in victimization meetings. There's almost a competition of who's been hurt the worst and who's the most resentful and talking about their parents, talking about confronting their parents and telling them how evil they are and how, that, how good that makes them feel that they find their aged mother and say, you ruined my life, you bitch, leave me alone. <laughs> funny, but it isn't very funny. You don't find anybody leaving those meetings smiling and laughing like you did in the AA meeting. The second little price tag you gotta pay for victimization is that you must accept the role of being perpetually different. There's no recovery from that form of difference because it's done at a different level. And I never really understood that until I heard a 
one of the leaders of one of these movements talking about, he was using the analogy. I finally understood what they were saying. He said it as though when I were a sapling of a tree, a small tree, these people bent me and warped me. And I grew up strong, but I'm bent. I'll never, no matter how much I know about it, I'll never go back to being a straight tree. I will always be crooked as long as I live. Crooked inside. And tears of tears in his eyes. He says, I'd like to be straight, but I can't. That's another little price tag you pay for victimization. And the third price tag, which is quite obvious for people like you and me, you must accept intermittent but intense self-pity. Because it becomes quite obvious. I could have been something. I got good emotions. I'm loving and kind. It's just that my life has been so screwed up I don't get a chance to use it. I'll never really get to be what I should have been. I could have been a contender. You know, I don't know. Now you say, well, three little emotions like that to get rid of guilt. Maybe that's a good swap. Maybe that's a good swap to get rid of the guilt. Little victimization, little uh, resentment, little self-pity, little feeling of being different. So what? I mean, it's not pleasant, but it's better than suicidal guilt. And it may be, except uh, in that book you're studying this weekend, that blue book that Joe and Charlie are so well taking you through, if you listen, you will hear that it has almost three specific, the most lethal feelings for people like you and me. Resentment is the number one offender. Feelings of difference, self-pity. And why are these such lethal emotions? Because they will justify every drink you and I take till we die from it. And it never was my fault, and I never was really an alcoholic. This was done to me. And it's kind of funny, funny, until you see enough people die from it, then it isn't funny anymore. But uh, I, uh, I sound as though I'm attacking these therapies around me doing these things, and I'm not. I'm not at all. As an AA member, I have no opinion. I really don't have no opinion. They can do whatever they want to do. They can meet in their, and discuss their issues and their inner child and their adult child and all these things. They can do all of these things. But I want to tell you something. I think I, it's okay for me to say this. I do not want to go to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings and hear it talked about here. I, I, uh, because we are not in the victimization business. We are in the recovery from victimization business. And it sounds like I'm being terribly attacking, attacking them, but I'm not. I no more want to hear about your inner child in my next AA meeting that I would go to their meeting and insist they read the 12 traditions. They got their thing, and we got our thing. And if you want their thing instead of our thing, then God damn it, go to their thing. That's, uh, but I want to hurry up and say, I do not judge. But I'm not attacking anything. I'm just saying that this, that I said when I started out, and I'll say it again tonight, I'm glad that you are here listening and learning about the fundamentals of Alcoholics Anonymous and learning not only what it is, but what it is not. It is a program of recovery, not a program of searching to justify my own problems. It is a program of recovery therefrom. But I went to uh, psychoanalysis as long as I could stand it, until I ran out of money. Then I had to get deeper. I got in philosophy, got reading German philosophers. That really is an exercise in mind-boggling, I'll tell you. And some of them 
one of the guys that I liked best was a guy named Friedrich Wilhelm Nietzsche, who was kind of a cynical, nasty old guy. And, and I thought, God, he understands. I like what he says. And then I discovered he died in the insane asylum. <laughs> well, this bothered me for a while until I studied his life and discovered he wasn't really insane. He just had the final stages of syphilis. You know, he just, uh, nothing wrong with him. He just liked a good time. I understand that. Yeah. But one of the things Nietzsche said that I always liked, because when you've been raised in a strong church and you know you're going to go to hell, you can avoid it most of the time. But once in a while, when you're weak, two o'clock in the morning, it'll come and get you. You're going to go to hell. <laughs> and one of his characters, one of his tomes says this. He says, why are you concerned about God? God is dead. Perhaps he once existed to set these orbs of whirl. But look about you now. Anarchy, emotional anarchy, physical anarchy. If he ever did exist, God is dead. Put him out of your mind. I remember reading that thinking, boy, that sounds good to me. I hope that's true. I hope that's true because it sounds good. That's one of the reasons I like Nietzsche. But there's always people even to spoil that. There's a famous plaque in the theological seminary in Chicago where that very statement is quoted. It says, God is dead. Signed Friedrich Wilhelm Nietzsche, 1884. And then beneath it it says, Nietzsche is dead. Signed God, 1906. <laughs> yeah. You never want to read that kind of crap in theological seminaries, I'll tell you that. But I read a lot of things. But I'll tell you the one thing that helped my emotions the most in my life is something I didn't pay much attention to at all. I discovered when I was a boy, 15 years old, on the deck of a ship in Pearl Harbor, not very long after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, and some men in, I'd run away from home either in a fit of patriotism or teenage neurosis, and I was on a ship out there without any training, and some grown-up men induced me to drink whiskey that I promised my mother and grandmother I never would drink, and I drank it, and I threw it up, and it made me sick, and they laughed at me, so I tried to do it when nobody's looking, and I did that for days to be accepted. And the day before my 16th birthday, I held a drink of that crap down. I couldn't breathe. And then all of a sudden, something strange happened. I felt significantly better. I thought, oh, that's pretty good. I, that's why they drink that. You know. I didn't give it any great thought. You know, there's a, there's a book out in the last three or four years that says, everything I need to know I learned in kindergarten. That may be true for him, but not for me. I never learned anything in kindergarten. I used to have to bring home notes because I wouldn't sleep on my rug. You know, just, I never have been any good, I guess. Where I learned things, and where most people I have ever known learn things, you learn them in your teens. That's when you learn about life. You may not even be aware of it, but you're learning about life. As your body changes, you learn about lust. And then you learn about love. Then you eventually learn, if you're going to have any luck whatsoever, You've got to find a way to disguise lust as love. And you learn about smoking cigarettes. I never never knew anybody smoked cigarettes, but on that ship they smoked cigarettes. So I smoked cigarettes and puked and smoked cigarettes and puked till finally I could smoke cigarettes. And I smoked two packs a day for the next 42 years. I learned that well. I, uh, I learned a lot of things. You learn as you grow up. You learn about your family is going to support you sooner or later. You learn... Things are all kind of tough. People treat you funny. Really can't afford to be too idealistic. You better look out for yourself. All these dumb things. 
And one of the things I learned as a teen is that drinking makes you feel better. I, I never gave any more attention than I did anything else. Alcohol makes you feel better. I didn't become a terrible alcoholic, going crazy at the age of 15 in the South Pacific. I, like everything else, I tried to learn to drink like I learned to smoke. I did it and I got sick and watched grown-ups and see if I could learn. As I got older and a little more sophisticated, I tried to find things that wouldn't make me sick and things I liked. And at the end of the war, I was in the Naval Hospital up in Northern California, and they uh, passed out some tests. They had to get rid of them, and I just happened to, I was in a good mood that day, because even then I was insecure enough to try to have to act tough all the time, because I was small and skinny and dumb. And, uh, but I just took this test, and I'm glad I did the best I could. They came back a lot of weaker, and said, oh, Clancy, we're so proud of you. You've got the highest score in the ward, and we're going to get a high school diploma from the Armed Forces Institute. And I thought, oh, so what? You know. But I think about that now, what a very fortunate thing that was in my life. Uh, because I, uh, I was able to go, if I wouldn't have got that, I would have had to go back to Eau Claire, Wisconsin after the war and start my junior year of high school. And I never would have done that in a thousand years. Instead, I was able to go back and go to Wisconsin after the war. Perhaps you've heard of that. We won the Rose Bowl. <laughs> and we should have beat Ohio State, but they lucked out in the last minute. But I don't judge. I don't judge. Ohio State must have beaten Wisconsin about 35 of the last 40 times. We don't get very many chances to brag about it. But anyway, I went to Wisconsin. I got married in college, went out in the world, became a sports writer. I'd married this uh, Catholic girl who, they didn't tell me about Catholic girls. I just thought she had black hair. I thought she was exotic. Nobody in the Norwegian Lutheran Church ever had black hair. And it uh, turned out that if you marry a good Catholic girl, you have taken on a new role. You've just become a national distributor of small Catholics. <laughs> Whether you intend to or not. I, uh, I remember trying to plead with her, can't we use birth control? And she said, no. I think about it, when I think about it now, I have to laugh. Because, you know, you young people, it's hard to believe this. But in those days, I don't know what the hell I'd have done if she'd have said yes. I would have been afraid to go to the drugstore and get them. You had to be some kind of a macho guy. We'd hire a macho guy to go to the drugstore. And even they would go and say, Hey, give me a pack of cigarettes. And some condoms. <laughs> now it's all different. At least this drugstore by my house, these kids would say, Hey, give me some condoms. And some cigarettes. Yeah, it's, uh, I guess that's progress. But uh, I had to get better jobs, so I had to get better jobs. I got, uh, it stimulated me to get better jobs. I got in advertising and public relations. I did a lot of things over the years. And the best friend I had all these years is what I discovered in that ship. Whenever all else fails, a few drinks makes you feel significantly better. I want to tell you something. Alcohol is the best friend I have ever had. I never had a better friend than alcohol. That sounds, if you're new tonight, that may sound terrible at an AA meeting. But uh, it's really true. It hurts me to this day to hear some old fools get to the podium and say things like, that damn alcohol was poisoned from the first drink. <laughs> it's like hearing somebody badmouth an old girlfriend of mine or something. Yeah. Hey, wait a minute. She may be a pig now, but she didn't used to be. Yeah. 
alcohol always made me feel significantly better. And now, as I sit around it over the years, I can look back and see why. I can almost, I can give you as good an example as any. It took a person like me on a continuing basis who never felt like there were quite enough, and for a few hours, I became more than enough. I became more than enough. It took a person like me who's lived with fear most of my life, and for a few hours, I become fearless. It took a person like me who's always sensitive to rejection, and at least for a few hours, I moved from being rejectee to rejecter. Just, I don't know how to explain that better. There's one way to do it. I must have said it a thousand times, but I don't know a better way to say it. The best example I know. I'm sure there are guys in this room, a lot of them have had this experience. Sitting in a bar late at night, having a few drinks, watching an absolute miracle take place in front of your eyes. Watching some old beast gradually become beautiful. I might sidle over to such an old queen at closing time, imply there will be delights beyond her comprehension. She'd like to join me in the old Chevy. Now she would say, no! I don't know what I'd do if I were sober. I guess I'd hang myself. I, I couldn't stand it. But I wouldn't be there asking a question if I were sober. But I've had a few drinks. I don't feel rejected when she says, no! I feel sorry for her. <laughs> Too bad, bitch. Don't come begging tomorrow. I'll tell you, when you never feel that way in the gnats, it's hard to describe what a wonderful feeling that can be. Alcohol has always enabled me to become a better father, a better everything. A few years ago, before they had the adult child thing programs going, I had never heard of it at any rate. Nightline did a program on, on it. Somebody, somebody peed in that pot. Nice try, Bill. Even, I mean, I know that water doesn't look that way in Ohio. It does in California, but not in Ohio. The only problem, uh, oh, you started to say about Nightline. They uh, sent somebody out to talk to my, uh, they called me Christmas and said, we understand your children home. Could we talk to you about what it feels to your children about an adult child of an alcoholic? Sure. So you don't mention I'm an AA. So they said, camera came out to our house and my oldest daughter at that time was on the faculty of the University of New Mexico. She's now DA down there, but she was definitely. And we sat side by side and, and they interviewed us. I don't remember what she, what she said. No, I was trying to be cooperative. And the show was supposed to run the next Monday. And that stinking Qaddafi did something so terrible that weekend that they supplanted our show and ran a special on Qaddafi. I had never really forgiven that raghead puke. I love him. And about six months later, I was at, the unit at Madison one day, doing, giving a talk, and uh, my wife probably said, they just called from New York, you're going to do that show tonight. So I forced myself to stay up to watch it. I didn't care about me, but I wanted to see how my daughter looked. <laughs> and uh, God, that was a dreary program. It was just a whole bunch of grown-up men and women. 
Well, my life has just been terrible. My parents drank, and I, my father drank, and sometimes didn't nurture me enough. And my, and somebody else. And then the parents got on, which is even worse. Well, it's all my fault. My daughter would have been president, but I wasn't nurturing enough. I thought, God, when they get to me, at least you'll hear something. And they pretty soon they got to me, and I heard myself saying, Well, it's all my fault. Hey. They must have doped me, that's all I can tell you. But anyway, I noticed my daughter didn't get on, and I couldn't imagine. I called her at Albuquerque. I said, Mary, the mother called her, did you watch the show? She said, yes. I said, you didn't even get on. She said, I know I wouldn't. As soon as I thought I was going, I said, why is that? She said, don't you remember what I said? I said, no. Said, I remember. I told him was that you were always a lot more fun when you were drinking. It's when you were sober it was so hideous around the house. That's right. When I left, I, you know, that's why I remember it too. Because I, uh, I had, was going to AA at this time in psychoanalysis, and I knew that al I was not an alcoholic. That wasn't my problem. Because my answer, and I sometimes overshot. The only problem I've ever had with alcohol, I sometimes have a tendency to drink a little too much. Or as I prefer to believe, I have many times been thoughtlessly overserved. Not my fault. And when I get act sometimes I get bizarre. And I never knew how I got bizarre until I got psychoanalysis and discovered that I was like, when I'm sober, I'm like Prometheus chained to a Norwegian Lutheran rock. But when I drink, I'm, my bonds are broken. I'm free. And so I, I, could, I understood that explanation. I never could get a policeman to buy it. You know, <laughs> I, I was like Prometheus chained to a rock. And I'm free. Oh, shut up. Get in the car, you asshole. Bizarre enough so that I was sent to AA at 22 and discovered I wasn't really an alcoholic for a while, but I went back to AA from time to time. I worked hard in becoming successful. I did become successful. I had emotional problems. I sometimes was overserved. I had very, very scattered, checkerboard life. And a few number of years later, something happened to me that cannot happen to people with my background and ability and intelligence. One morning, I found myself being physically thrown out of a Skid Row mission, the midnight mission in Los Angeles, and the guy said, and stay out of here, you bum. And I tried to explain to him, I'm not a bum. Three years ago, I was on the faculty of the University of Texas. Ads that I helped write, the old Elsie Delmer ad, about the cows, were running that very week in Life and Time and Colliers and Serving Post. I've had my picture in the New York Times for achievement. How many people do you know have had their picture in the New York Times for achievement? But it's hard to explain these things in midair. You know, you, 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 you soar across the sidewalk. And uh, unfortunately, about three weeks before that, I had my front teeth kicked out in the Phoenix jail. So I wasn't hitting those continents quite as cleanly as I would like to. And I stood outside of that mission early in the morning. And I thought, how, it suddenly struck me, how can this be? I'm standing here. My life is, I'm dying. And I don't know what the hell's wrong with me. I, uh, if a man were to come over to me and say, Slim, your, your life is on the line. Are you an alcoholic? I'd have had to say to him, I wish I were. I wish I were an alcoholic. It would make it so much simpler, but I'm not. I know I'm not. There's something different, terribly wrong with me. Based on everything I know about, I know about alcoholism. I've read the book Alcoholics Anonymous years ago. I've been to a lot of meetings over the years. But there's one thing that sets me aside. 
and I just can't overcome that. And it started to rain, and I had to get off that street. I walked 71 blocks out to an AA club in the corner of Wilshire and Fairfax that I'd been asked to leave a week before for being in there drunk, and that's creating trouble. And I hung around that damn club, and I, it was just hideous. They were AA fanatics. They were goofy, you know, the kind of people that, you know, you try to get a little financial help, maybe, just by hinting. You say, you know, I, I used to be pretty successful, but I, I've lost everything. Now I have no money. I'm, I was living in the back seat of an abandoned car back to the AA club. And somebody said, I didn't have my teeth, and I, I'm sick, and I don't feel good, and I, if I had a few bucks, I could, you know, just get on my feet. I just had a place to live and some, some meals. And you know the AA fanatic answer to that? Watch the steps, go to a lot of meetings, and all turn out. <laughs> Bite it. Yeah. I really felt terrible. And they did the same things they do now. All this old fanaticism. Go to the lot of meetings, get a sponsor. And I'd been around AA longer than most of them there. And so I, I got a sponsor. I, they all got that. I'd seen in the movies, and he'd been a character actor, he played Lovesher. He agreed, and he should have won the Academy Award for every role he ever played. He just was a, he was, that was not his real persona. He was a tough, mean, nasty, unfeeling. I started to explain to him about my inner feelings and how, how I'd been hurt a lot. And said, I don't want to hear that shit! You just, you don't understand, do you, Bob? And he, would, uh, he was rather cruel to me, but I, I tried to stay out of sight. And I hung around and I did a little... And somehow I had no intention to stay sober. I'll tell you a very good reason why. Because when I stay sober, I feel so bad I can't stand it. I, uh, I, was, in the, I was in the insane asylum in Texas. I directed an opera at the University of Texas. In the spring, the next winter, I directed the Christmas pageant in the Texas State Insane Asylum. Not a very complex production. Uh, the director's main job was trying to keep the three wise men off the Virgin Mary, if you possibly could. We just want to worship her clancy. Get back, Lamar, back. But the reason I was in that nut house, there was nothing on my commitment papers, anything about drinking. Not a word. I was in there as a cold, sober suicide. And the reason I was cold sober is because I'd taken a vow on my son's casket. I would not drink. Well, we had little children in the house because I had been in jail when my son died. And it's just, I never could tell you how much guilt that brought me. If I'd have been out of jail, it wouldn't make any difference. But when you're in that position, you know that I would have thought of something. And uh, I stayed sober. I had a couple jobs. And my wife and children had moved into town from the day. And it was very hot. And, loud, and just... And I swore I wouldn't drink. And when I don't drink, it just gets so bad I can't stand it. And one day when my family's at church, I couldn't drink. I'd taken this vow, so I piled my car in the garage and put the hose in the, on the uh, exhaust, ran in the car and turned the motor and went to sleep and died. Just died. And the guy next door saw me not come out of there and he came in there. I couldn't have been dead very long. He pulled me out and beat on my chest and rushed me to the hospital and oxygenated me and talked to me and examined me and determined I was a paranoid schizophrenic and committed me for an indefinite period to the Texas State Insane Asylum in Big Spring, Texas. Now that's how I get when I stay sober, folks. That is not what you call an alcohol problem. 
I remember thinking about that sometime later. I remember thinking years later. I'd like to go back to that, find that psychiatrist someday. He's probably old and feeble now. I should move him around pretty good. I'd like to grab him by the shirt front and say, You quack! You ought to lose your license! Calling me a dual personality, a schizoid personality. For Christ's sake! If I could have got my personality down to two, I'd have made it. My problem has always been this committee that forms at the drop of a hat. What do you think we ought to do? I don't know. Let's get out of here. I don't believe we can. What do you think? You know. I hear people in AA when I used to go, I used to hear people say, AA is not enough for me. I, I think I have to get group therapy. I have never needed group therapy. I just go for a ride alone in my car. That's why, uh, that's why I like drinking. It gets it down to one voice. It may be a rotten voice, but it's one voice. Why don't you quit your job and punch the son of a bitch in the face? Okay. Boom. But I hung around that stinking AA club, got little jobs, got fired off them. And I, uh, years later, I used to look back, oh, you must look back, I'm sure a lot of, I know there are a lot of people in the first two or three years. Where did it change? How did it change? Now, I'll tell you, I, I used to think, well, I took my inventory, that's what it changed. But that's not what it changed, because I wouldn't have been survived long enough to take an inventory. And about three or four years ago, someone reminded me of a, of a thing that happened to me that changed my... Uh, I, uh, there was a, used to be a group in Central Hollywood called the Central Hollywood Group that may have been the weirdest single AA collection of people ever got together. I mean, strange people. Men who dressed like women, women who dressed like men, some who didn't dress like anything, and some one guy had a plumed helmet, and one guy had little curly shoes, and they were all in some goofy... Just, Bella Lugosi used to go there from time to time. You know, he'd sit in that meeting and he'd Don't bite my neck, you some bitch, you know. But, right, I don't know why, but that was my favorite meeting. I just looked forward to that every week. The only place I knew where I had lower companions in the whole world was that moment. And uh, I was there one night. And I like this is a discussion meeting. I mean, the participation meeting, you know. I hate speaker meetings. In California, we have mostly speaker meetings, and I hate them. Especially when, you know, when I was new, I hated them, because I liked the first part of the speeches, because they all were talking about how rotten things were and how bad they had done. I said, yeah, I identify. But you know, sooner or later, sometime between now and the Lord's Prayer, that goof is going to say, but then, one day I walked through that door, and the desire to drink left me instantly. I now have three million dollars with me tonight. <laughs> Several different families have returned to me. <laughs> I would all the one thing, I put the plug in the jug. <laughs> and when you're sitting there just thinking, does it hurt at least to cut your wrist or hang yourself? I remember thinking, I wish I had one curare dart. Just <clears throat> Tell us how that feels. Well, I, you know, I think when new people, I'm sure they get disgusted with listening to success stories all the time. It all seemed to me, AA speakers would be listened to a lot more intensely by everybody. If every so often we got a speaker in there and said, and then it turned out, God damn it, I just couldn't make it. <laughs> and you could sit there every me and say, will he or won't he? It would really be fun. But I was there at, uh, there was a coffee break halfway through the meeting, and I 
I saw this woman sitting here, and I just, oh, she, there's a woman like her in most groups. Her name is Mary Lisa or something like that. And I just hate her. She's bubbling, and everybody loved her. Oh, Mary Lisa. She had people who she sponsored, and her sponsor loved her, and she was secretary of a group, and the kind of person you just want to walk over to and go, boom, 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 and I was looking at her and thinking, I'd kind of like to smash you in the smug stomach just to watch you bend over once. And I wasn't going to do anything. I was just watching this. And, and all of a sudden, here comes my sponsor through the crowd, followed by two of his brown nosers. He says, Classy! And I want you to apologize to Mary Lisa. I thought, for Christ's sake, he can read my mind. I says, why? He says, last night at the Frank Randall group, I heard that you called her a bitch. I had some, some relief, but at least it was, you never want to get a sponsor who's got snitches everywhere. There's just no rest. I said, Bob, don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to be smart, but she really is a bitch. So why do you think she's a bitch? She told her new girl not to go to bed with me. Well, she's absolutely right. You don't apologize. And I looked at her, and she could hear all this. She goes, <laughs> I thought, I would rather be drunk and die in a gutter with rain running up my nose than take this public sort of having my feelings hurt. That's, you know, I would rather die. I'd rather, I'm leaving to hell with it. I'm four months sober, and I never felt worse. And I, uh, and I was starting to, I'm going to resign from my sponsor. I knew it would kill him, but I didn't care. I was I was working out in my head. I had it just about right. I said, Bob, why don't you take these 12 golden stuff to recovery, garnish them with the 12 traditions, which are the group as the steps are the individual, season them with the 12 concepts of world service, wrap them all in the 12 promises which never come true to anyone with brains, and stick them up your nose! So hello, you son! I was just about to lay this on him when suddenly a ray of light came out of heaven and illuminated me. Actually, it was just a passing thought. It's a little more dramatic this way, isn't it? Would you rather be Saul of Tarsus or Clancy of Los Angeles? I said. And it suddenly struck me, I've been doing this all wrong. That's why a lot of old timers don't have much hair in front. They go, a lot of years to do an act. You've done that a lot, haven't you? Yes, yes. You must be a smart man. You know, I've been acting as though i got to mean these things. All these dumb things he tells me to do. Set up chairs and pick up cups and thank the speaker. Crazy things. And I've been acting as though I had to mean it and I never did it. I don't have to mean anything. I can just pretend I mean it and I'll fool that old puke and I'll feel superior to him and they'll never know and I'll feel better. I thought, why didn't I think of this months ago? Okay, Bob. Sorry, Mary Lisa. You bitch. <laughs> I became quite an activist of it. I said, pick up cups. Here, Bob. But I would think, you know why you don't get parts in movies anymore? Because you're crazy. Start the meeting. Here, Bob. I'll bet you would too if you had enough brains to unfold a chair. Thanks for speaker. Sure, I love hypocrites, Bob, just like you, yeah. <laughs> I became quite an activist, and I stayed sober. And a couple months later, I finally got terribly depressed again for my phoniness, 
and I decided to commit suicide in that day. Instead of committing suicide, I called my sponsor. All those actions had gotten me to do things. I called my sponsor, and he cursed me into writing an inventory. And he took me for a ride along the ocean for 40 miles, and he gave me a flashlight. I read it to him for 40 miles. And I got all done. I thought, you're making me get out of this car. And he just yawned. And I've taken that same trip maybe 220 times since then. On the other side, well, some other puke is over there with a flashlight. Here, let me explain this part. No, don't explain it, just read it. And like most things, the inventory becomes something that you wonder what you made such a big deal of after you take it. But before you take it, it kills me. And little by little, I stayed active. And little by little, I stayed sober. By being forced by pain into taking action. And over the period of years, it uh, finally held a job when I was a year sober. And I got another little job when I was two years sober. I got a job as a writer finally in the medical corporation, a very low-grade writer. And I went to work every day. My sponsor insisted on that. And I got to be director of advertising for that corporation. And I, another guy and I were brought into Hollywood, and we created the number one hard rock station in the world, something called Boss Radio, just took the place by storm. And I was 10 years sober as downtown during public relations at oil company. I was 15 years sober as a marketing director in Beverly Hills. I was five years sober, the same wife and all those children heard the crinkle of green in my pocket all the way to a post office box in Dallas, Texas, leaped out of their post office box, fled to my side, attached themselves to me like a group of starving chiggers. Nine months and ten seconds later, another Catholic hit the street. Thank God somebody bought me a metrodome and I worked on the rhythm system after that. <laughs> but they're all grown up, all doing well. All doing fine, successful. And I live in a house out by the ocean, and doing fine. I, I wish I knew who the new people were here. There's somebody here in their first 30 days. There's one, no, 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 don't clap, don't clap. They've done nothing to deserve it. I want to see the person who's here new because I'm not going to say this to you, but I'm going to look at you, as they used to look at me, as if to say, I've got it all together, and you haven't. <laughs> There's just a little something I want to bring up before I sit down, now that I've made that point. Probably the most important thing I've said tonight, or I'll say before I sit down, I said, my name is Clancy Immerslin, and I'm an alcoholic. I said that a long time ago. And if you're new, you might wonder, did you miss the part where I became an alcoholic? I wasn't an alcoholic when I drank. I wasn't an alcoholic the day I got sober, and I haven't become an alcoholic since. When in the world did I become an alcoholic? And I want to tell you, that that's the greatest gift I've ever received. I've received an Alcoholics Anonymous, of Alcoholics Anonymous members ahead of me from the big book, of taking actions long enough to discover the most important thing I've ever learned, and I'll try to communicate it to you if you're having problems. I finally discovered if my problem is alcohol, I am not an alcoholic. And conversely, if I'm an alcoholic, my problem is not and cannot be alcohol. Now, doesn't that sound strange and upside down, some kind of a TV breakthrough or something? But I'm convinced that's the message of AA, the message of this book that Joan Charlie is showing us, the message of our meeting. I'm sure I'm one of the very few people in this room, maybe the only one who sat and talked to Bill Wilson about it at length, the guy that founded this organization. And that's what he felt, at least circa 1963, and I don't think he changed his mind. But if you're new, you might say, but of course the problem is alcohol. Everybody knows that. I can just prove that in 10 seconds. If alcohol is the problem, detoxes turn on recovered people. And they don't. Jails turn on recovered people. Treatment centers turn on recovered people. Hospitals turn on recovered people. 
to turn out people who are physically sober with varying amounts of information on what may be wrong with them. But I'll guarantee you, if they be like me, like our book says, alcoholics of our type. And I might just say in passing, there's a lot of people in AA meetings who don't seem to be alcoholics of our type, who would like to have us change AA to fit their type. I would suggest to you that you nicely suggest to them they find a place to go where alcoholics of their type may be, because this program is designed for alcoholics. So they're alcoholics of our type, or even, I should say in passing, not even alcoholics. I have other problems. It almost gets for a while, there isn't so much anymore, but a few couple years ago, it got to be a big thing. I'm an addict. I'm not an addict. I'm an addict. I'm a compulsive gambler. And, you, and then there was a thought that said, it's all one big disease. You can't keep anybody out of here. Let me tell you something. It isn't all one big disease. The guy who said it's all one big disease is the guy that ran a treatment center with only one van. You had to send them out to one meeting. Just tell them you're alcoholic and screw them. You know. The whole purpose here is that something different. We're all talking about in a minute. But if being sober made the answer, that's great. If the problem isn't alcohol, then what is it? Is it something you haven't told us about the old timers are keeping to themselves? No. It's something you hear every day, and if you're a member, if you're here tonight, you certainly know it, although you may not even know it. Even the people 30 days sober know it. The problem is something called alcoholism. But alcohol, same thing. Alcohol, alcoholism, what's the difference? No difference. Big difference. Big difference. The day will come in your life, I'll guarantee you, when your sanity in life will depend on remembering the difference. There's a lot of differences, but we're a little short of time. Let's put it in one sentence. An alcohol problem is overcome by stopping drinking and cleaning up your act. In this mind-boggling, inside-eroding, life-destroying, eventually fatal thing called alcoholism, you'll discover that stopping drinking and cleaning up your act has no significant long-term effect on your life other than to gradually make it so painful you can't. The thing that makes alcoholism a fatal illness is that the pain of sobriety will eventually always get worse than the remembered pain and relief of drinking. But even that doesn't make you an alcoholic. That just gets you halfway there. Something else must be present. You must be one of the five or six or seven percent of people in every generation who get an unnatural reaction to alcohol and never even know it's an unnatural reaction. You have no way to compare it against anything. None of us ever know it. It's an unnatural reaction. What is the unnatural reaction? Makes you stay drunk all the time? Nah. Makes you act crazy? Some people do, some people don't. I see people die who have never acted crazy once. They get more and more catatonic. And what is it's something that is so unexpected, I never would have guessed it in 10,000 years. Alcohol must have the unnatural reaction to almost instantly make everything. It's hard to remember this, but it doesn't do that to most people. That's why they don't drink it. For Christ's sake! Remember, to them it goes blah, blah, blah. But to you and me it goes boom. And that's why we're here and they're not. Yeah, that's really good, Bob. I'll let that one down. You bet. Yeah. Took me a lot of years to understand the truth of that. That is really true. It must, you can put it a little more clinically by saying it must have the power to almost instantly alter my perception of reality. It must almost instantly change my conditioned reflex. 
must almost instantly change my reactions to my environment, so on. But it makes no difference. It must be able to counter the demons of sobriety. And if it does that, it's great. But the problem is, eventually you must become dependent on it, little by little. And pretty soon it gets to be a problem. So then you get sober. Then you realize sobriety is really what's really painful after a while. So eventually you drink. And then you have to get sober. And then you have to drink. And you have to get sober. That funny little paragraph in chapter 3 we talked about earlier, Joe and Charlie. All these things, changing from scotch to brandy, drinking beer only, drinking only at home, never drinking, all these things, are just tools that people like you and I use to try to find a way out. It looks as though I can't drink, and yet I can't stay sober. I've got to find a formula where I can do it. But you can't. That phenomenon is called alcohol. And today it is estimated over 95% of people in America who suffer from alcoholism will die drunk. Or is a direct result of drinking? A number of people in this room will die drunk, I'll guarantee you. I may be one of them. The sponsor that taught me that, a couple of years after he taught me that, got mad at AA and stopped going, and he died drunk. And he's the guy who taught me. People said to me, can you bear his loss? I said, well, he proved to me that every such thing he said was true. And he stopped doing it, just like he said, he got drunk and died. And the reason that's important to realize, especially if you're new, so knowing all about this won't help you. You're getting a great deal of education this weekend. A great deal. I wish I'd have got that when I was new. But all of this information will not keep you sober if you don't go out and take the actions they're talking about. Alcoholics Anonymous is not in this room. It's out on those streets. And that's what we all got to remember because our mind would tell us different. Because Alcoholics Anonymous, it's an interesting thing, must overcome the biggest problem that any of us have but they don't really understand. And you and I have been given a gift by God to help people de- have that feeling diminish in us. That is a great... Everything that's happened in AA, from Dr. Bob, hearing it from Bill, and those two talking it to Bill D, and those two talking to the three talking to Ernie, and right on down to right now. Alcoholics Anonymous is the same thing tonight in Columbus, Ohio, as it was June 10th in Akron, Ohio. It is in the book, it isn't the meeting, it isn't love, it isn't warmth, it isn't spirituality. All of these things are very important adjuncts to AA. But what Alcoholics Anonymous is, as it always is, one alcoholic talking to another alcoholic to help him reduce his feelings of difference at least enough so that he will begin to take actions he does not yet believe in. And that is the beginning of sobriety in every life that it is, and always has been. We get sometimes so mixed up in the little petty things and the side issues that we get like churches who battle of who believes in Christ enough and they fight and kill each other. Countries do that. And here we have to remember we are here to maintain identification that will help us reduce the feelings of difference that will destroy us. I think it's I don't know anything that's more important than that. I think it's great, as I say. I don't know. I'm an old fundamentalist. The only therapy I've had since October 31st, 1958 is alcoholic anonymous. I've seen a psychiatrist a couple times a week for a while. People say, why'd you do that? Because I had to tell them if he didn't go to those two meetings, they wouldn't be his sponsor. I was waiting for him to straighten out so he could straighten me out, but he never has quite turned the corner. But I'm, I'm not, we're not putting down any therapy here. All I'm telling you 
if Alcoholics Anonymous works. If it didn't, I'll tell you this. I'm a hedonist. I like comfort. And I've been around active for 35 years. If there were a better way to go, I would be doing it. I'll guarantee you. If there were an easier road and way to go, I would be doing it. I wouldn't still be trying to make amends. Well, I'd act like a goof. And I wouldn't keep trying to be honest. I wouldn't keep trying to do what I said I'd do. Some of the greatest spiritual lessons I've ever learned in my life, I learned here. Not prayer. I learned about that in the Norwegian Lutheran Church. You know what I learned here? Do what you said you would do. Be where you said you would be, when you said you would be there, or else let them know you're not going to be there. Try not to take out your upsets on people who can't answer back. Your children, a waiter, waitresses, somebody in your family, somebody that you can't, your employees. Try to act with a little degree of dignity even the days you can't, and you will fail many times. You know, we just had a January New Year's Eve. I all around me, people making New Year's resolutions. The best gift you and I have is this. For you and me, every night is New Year's Eve. And every day is New Year's Day. And sometimes I fail with my resolutions badly, but tonight when I kneel and say my prayers for God I've come to love, much of my, I can make some resolutions to do it a little bit better tomorrow. And so can you, if I allow myself to do it. And I can put this knowledge to work that Joe and Charlie are showing you in this magic book. The last thing I want to say before I sit down and get out of here, when I was about five years sober, I wanted to be secretary of the group. Badly. I couldn't get elected anywhere. I didn't seem to have any following for some reason. But somebody said to me, hey, there's a little Ohio Street and Tuesday night meeting has died. Why don't you go with... I took eight tattered followers and I started a little meeting and I wrote a format and got a speaker to come and the first speaker, eight people there and the next week, about 13 people there and the next week, about 19 people there and then I... My announcements, I offended a lot of people, I guess, so I was back to eight people the next week. <laughs> but over a period of the year, we built up maybe 45 people regularly. And I just felt wonderful. Now, this is the time most meetings would have an uh, election. But they're not quite ready for election. Just, I mean, I don't want to disrupt what we're doing here. I'll sacrifice without saying anything. I'll just be secretary for another year. So I'll secretary for another year. And God, the meeting started to get to about 65. Just wonderful. Just and people were involved, and I thought, God, was so close to self-government, but it's like an emerging African nation. They're just not... So I decided to be secretary just a little while longer until I got on the feet. About a month later, some boob came up to me and said, are we ever going to have the election in this group? And that was the guy whose life I had saved, for Christ's sake. Why? Don't you like the way I'm running the group? He said, no, no, not that. He said, people in other groups say, don't you ever have the election? If we had an election, we could elect you, and then nobody could say anything. We'd say, yeah, we elected. Good idea, Jimmy. So I had the election, and they swept me out of office. I'll tell you what a good job I'd done, though. I had such a good foundation that even after I left, the meeting really took off. Now it's about 1,100 people every Wednesday night in the university synagogue. Some of you have been there. Big meeting. Very successful. I'm, I sit there. I'm the founder. I... I have a little roll, I sit there in the middle, and I, I give little signals, you know. Nobody pays any attention, but it cheers me up. So. <laughs> At the end of the meeting, I go to the back, and people bring their newcomers to meet me, and I, I try to act like a dressing. This is Clancy. He, he talks all over the world, and he's the founder of this group, and he's been sober longer than anybody. Smile. Hello there. 
Welcome to our meeting. I hope you brought your problems. Many folks leave them here. <laughs> if they're a diabetic, they usually go into a coma. Every so often, some booboo come up who doesn't know who I am, just stagger up this. Hey, buddy, will you give me a ride back over to the VA psycho ward? And let me sum up everything I know about AA in this one thing. The nicest thing I know about AA, I learned this 34 years ago, so share it with you now. I could look right in that boob's face and think, think at him exactly what I want. I could just think at him. What? Give you a ride to the psycho ward? There's 1,100 people here who need action desperately. There's one who was given till he's drained dry for over a third of a century. I'm not just some guy in a shirt and tie standing back here. I'm, I'm a well-known speaker. I'm Clancy Eye from up in the sky. For Christ's sake. Now I can think that as long as I say, okay. And, and the... The message of AA is after I drop this puke off with the VA and I drive home, my head says, Oh, Clancy, is there no end to your goodness? <laughs> I would suggest tomorrow morning you once again listen closely to Joe and Charlie and to that last page where he said, We know only a little, but God will constantly disclose more to you and me. And we will try. I feel that same way tonight. I can't tell you I joke a lot and I laugh a lot. But nothing is more precious to me than Alcoholics Anonymous as it is. You are young. Believe me. Keep it that way. You will always be glad you did.